Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to shift back into the world of literature. And where we left off last time, we were talking about kind of the transition out of the Romantic period and into the Victorian period in England and into realism and naturalism, uh, actually just realism, in other areas. Today we're going to focus on the shift into Victorian literature from the Romantics. Uh, really the shift out of Romanticism comes earlier in England than it does in the other countries. It comes earlier in England than it does in France, than it does in the United States, than it does in Russia. So England is kind of at the at the front of kind of shifting out of the Romantic period. And one of the big shifts that you have is in the Romantic literature, you have a lot of stories that are focused on the individual and kind of the importance of uh, the individual and the individual overcoming. Well, one of the things that happens during the Victorian period is you shift from that to more of an emphasis on society and the importance of the individual's position in society. So the romantic character kind of, you know, thumbs their nose at society and goes their own direction, does their own thing. The Victorian characters are very much immersed in society and it's very much uh, seen as important. And a lot of this has to do with um, a lot of the changes that happen in that century. Uh, the century of the Victorian writers is the you know 1800s, uh, from the 1830s to the uh, really 1901 is the Victorian era. But this is the era of industrialization. This is when England becomes, you know, not only a uh, colonial power, but it becomes an industrial power as well. And so you have the rise of industry and you have a huge shift in the population. You know, you have a sh huge shift in what the population does for a living. Um, prior to the 1800s, most people in England were living out in the country farming or working on farms and it was more rural. When you get into the 18th century and industrialization, there's a big shift in the population towards the cities. There's also a huge growth in the population, and things start to change very rapidly. So this is something that's kind of being taken into account. And England is going through, at the same time, both its greatest period of prosperity and also its greatest period of uh, poverty and despair for large parts of its population. Um, the Victorian literature generally tends to focus on two classes. Um, it focuses a lot of their stories and poetry on the middle class and kind of what are the expectations of, you know, a middle class man, a middle class woman. Uh, this is very similar and kind of taking over from the Romantics. Remember, the Romantics often changed from uh, the, which characters were important from it being it has to be about kings and queens and gods and goddesses to more regular people, more middle-class characters. Well, this part, the, the Victorian tradition does kind of keep going. Um, you know, the, the middle-class characters are seen as the important characters. And part of this also has to do with the shift in wealth. You know, if you think about it, the middle class is now the new wealthy. Um, these are the bankers, these are the lawyers, these are the, you know, these are the people that don't have necessarily titles, a sir, a lord, or lady, um, but they have a great amount of wealth. And so one of the things that is also 
sort of similar that you'll see in the literature is if you look back, if you remember when we talked about uh, medieval literature and the ideals of courtly love uh, and how a lot of that had to do with the shift in the audience um, from, you know, being old English tradition of for the men in the beer hall to in the Middle English and, you know, Middle Ages, uh, literature shifts into the court in into, you know, places where women and men coexist. And so a lot of the medieval literature was about um, sort of civilizing the knights, civilizing that aristocracy um, to act better, uh, to act more civilized. Uh, this is a similar thing you see in the Victorian period with the, with the literature geared towards the middle class. This is to teach them how to act like the upper classes, even though they're not nobility. You know, you have to remember for centuries and centuries, you were either born in the aristocracy or you were a peasant or even below a peasant, you were a serf. Um, there was no social mobility and these classes had been in existence for a long time, which meant everyone was raised in the class they were, they belonged to. Now you have a new class of people who are coming into these positions. Uh, the middle class is coming into being basically the replacement for the aristocracy in a lot of ways. And so, just like with the medieval literature, you have a lot of emphasis on how do we train these people how to behave in these ways? You know, what is the appropriate behavior for a lady? What is the appropriate behavior for a gentleman? And so in a lot of the middle class novels you see, and poetry, you see kind of these stories where, you know, the characters are rewarded if they're following the values that are proper, and they're punished if they are being like the romantics and thumbing their nose at society and everyone else. Now there's another sort of move in the Victorian literature that, you know, is another break. Uh, up through the romantic period even, you might occasionally have something about poorer people. Um, generally they were romanticized as kind of being uh, the noble, uh, poor. Um, you do have one author that I can think of that actually did address a little bit in the early Romantic period, sort of the troubles of the lower classes, uh, and that was Robert Blake with his uh, Songs of uh, Experience um, and Songs of Innocence. I'm sorry, not Robert Blake, William Blake. Uh, Robert Blake was an actor. Uh, William Blake with his Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, uh, and in that you do have sort of these uh, somewhat realistic depictions in the songs of experience of the lower classes. But this is not a very large literary trend. This is sort of something that's there a little bit, but not on a larger scale. When you get into the Victorian period, these issues really start to come out even more, mainly because you start having a lot more poor people in the cities because of industrialization. You start having a lot more child labor. You know, in uh, William Blake's time period, um, the child labor was maybe mainly for things like chimney sweeps and, and, you know, side jobs like that. By the time you get into the Victorian period, you have children working in factories uh, and children working in workhouses. Um, so the, 
the amount of child labor kind of explodes and the conditions for child labor keep getting worse and worse. Uh, and uh, two of the writers that I want to talk about today that and have really talked about that and addressed that, uh, the lower classes, uh, are Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Charles Dickens. Everyone's familiar with Charles Dickens. Uh, that, you know, everyone has probably seen A Christmas Carol, uh, Oliver Twist, uh, some of his other novels, Great Expectations. Um, so we'll talk about that a little later, but I want to talk a little bit about Elizabeth Barrett Browning first. I want to talk a little bit about her poem, uh, The Cry of the Children, because this is something that doesn't romanticize the, the plight of children. It pretty much gives it the way it is. It's very uh, descriptive and it's very realistic. Um, now, it may sound like some of this stuff is exaggerated, but this stuff is not exaggerated. And she starts out talking about, the in the first stanza of the poem, uh, do you hear the children weeping, O oh, my brothers, ere the sorrow comes with years? They are learning their, leaning their young heads against their mothers and cannot stop their tears. The young lambs are bleeding in the meadows. The young birds are chirping in the nest. The young fawns are playing with the shadows. The young flowers are blowing towards the west. But the young, young children, O oh, brothers, they are weeping bitterly. They are weeping in the playtime of others in the country of the free." And this is a pretty sharp contrast that she sets up. You know, she sort of talks about the young in nature, uh, young animals, young flowers, and, and how this is sort of playtime for them. And then she contrasts it with the poor children, who basically this is a time of no playing and a time of weeping. And at the end, she kind of gives another jab to kind of wake people up. And, and sort of reminds them, this isn't happening somewhere in some land far away by people who are, you know, less civilized, less free. You know, this is happening in the country of the free. It's happening in England, you know, the, a country of great prosperity, a country where you have, you know, this middle class that has these fancy houses that have, you know, huge carriages and fancy clothes and all of these elaborate dinner parties and things like that. And right next to that, you have children who are basically working 10, 12 hours a day uh, in horrible conditions until they collapse. In the second uh, stanza, she kind of talks about, you know, how you expect sorrow with old things, you know, old old men having sorrows for the things they've lost, old trees losing their leaves in the winter, um, you know, all, all of these things, but then she comes back to, you know, but then we have these children weeping in our hat in, in, a, in our happy fatherland. So again, here's another contradiction at the end of the stanza, you know, you have, yes, tears are normal at, with age and as you lose things and as you, you know, pass on, but here we have people that are just starting out and they're bitterly unhappy and this is right here. This is not something that's happening far away. You know, one of the things that both Browning and Dickens were trying to do, you know, they weren't just writing about this because, hey, this is great material. I can make a lot of money. They're writing about this to kind of attack the consciousness uh, and the consciences of the upper classes, of the middle class, to say, look, 
It's great you're having these tea parties. It's great you're having all of these fancy dinners and you have all of this marvelous wealth and you're making all of this money with your acquisitions. But what is this built on? And, you know, is it, maybe we should give up a little bit of this in order to, you know, support decently uh, the children of our country. Um, in the third stanza, they kind of mention death and death being something that is usually re reserved for old people. But the fourth stanza goes into um, talking about when it happens for children. Uh, true, say the children, uh, it may happen that we die before our time. Little Alice died last year. Her grave is shapen like a snowball in the rhyme. We looked into the pit prepared to take her. Uh, was no room for any work to, in the close of the day. Uh, from the sleep wherein she lieth, none will wake her, crying, Get up, little Alice, it is day. If you listen by the grave in the sun and the shower with, the ear, with your ear down, Alice never cries. Um, and, you know, the end of the stanza, they talk about it. This is a good thing when it happens. So this is really kind of bringing emphasis to the fact that yeah, the best thing that these poor kids can hope to look forward to is death. Maybe they get to die easily, you know, die early so they can finally get some rest. So they don't have to drag themselves out in the cold and, then, you know, work themselves to death in horrible conditions. Um, they can just relax. You know, this is definitely a poem that is a sharp criticism of Victorian society. But again, it's not a criticism where you she's saying you know, all is lost, and she's just doing this to vent her anger. Uh, she, she's doing this because she she wants to open people's eyes to what's going on. Uh, and her works and the works of Charles Dickens are extremely popular. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning is probably one of the most widely read poets in her lifetime. Um, her husband, Robert Browning, uh, who was a younger man than she was, um, he really wasn't as big as she was while she was alive. He didn't become as famous as, and, and really popular until after she had passed away. Um, uh, in her lifetime, she was probably one of the most widely read poets in England. Uh, she was, she was definitely up there, uh, with, with the top ones. And Dickens also was not writing these, you know, we, we think about literary novels and novels and literature, people who are outside of literature, and they think, uh, you know, that's just something that English majors read. Uh, Dickens' novels were not things that just people who studied literature in college read. Uh, these were wildly popular novels. These were read by everyone. Uh, he was one of the best-selling authors of his lifetime, and not only read in England, but read all over the world. You know, he would he would compare with any of the big authors we have today. And so you have these authors that are kind of using this platform and have a huge platform to sort of bring attention to these issues. And they do eventually start to pass some laws that improve conditions for children and improve conditions for the poor. Um, and 
sort of as this goes on, you move into uh, later, uh, you know, the later periods of the Victorian age, where it does tend to focus more and more on the middle class. But especially in the early and in, in middle period of Victorian literature, you really have a lot of attention drawn to the plight of the poor. And you have this attention being so you know, widespread and, and has such a huge audience that it does actually start to bring some changes about. Now, this tradition that they start up is something that we're, you know, we see going into the uh, the 19th century, into the 20th century, uh, the 21st century. You know, we have stories that are written to kind of, uh, they're fiction stories, but they're written to bring attention to, you know, the different cultural and social issues and economic issues that are going on. You know, one in particular that I've talked about in a podcast quite a while ago, if you guys remember back that far, I talked about The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. You know, this type of writing by Browning and by Dickens is sort of the inspiration for later writers like Sinclair and then writers that are more contemporary to sort of go in and look at these things. And as with Sinclair, you know, at first people thought, oh, these were exaggerations of how the poor lived. And they actually set up committees and went and looked into this and they realized, no, these aren't exaggerations. This is this is exactly how poor people are living. This is exactly how uh, children are being worked to death. Okay, uh, I'm going to break off uh, for tonight. Um, my next podcast will go back into philosophy, and we're going to go into Rousseau and talking about sort of, sort of his ideas about social contract. Um, that kind of plays into a lot of... Uh, the political philosophy that comes after him. Now, tying these time periods together, in philosophy, we are um, behind where we are in literature as far as uh, time time period wise. Um, the Victorian period, the uh, the Romantic period, and the Victorian period are really uh, during and after the Age of Enlightenment. And we're kind of just getting to the Age of Enlightenment with Locke and Rousseau um, because these guys are still prior to the American Revolution. A lot of the ideas behind the American and French Revolution come out of the ideas of Locke and Rousseau and Voltaire. So we're going to talk about Rousseau in the next episode. I hope all of you are doing well and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.